Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Our dear Father in heaven, we are so thankful for you, for your love, for what you provided for us. You are the only source of truth, healing, love, righteousness. We ask your Holy Spirit be poured out and be present among us, lead our minds, transform our hearts, and empower us to be your agents at this world, in this world, at this time in history. We pray in your holy name. Amen. So we're doing lesson number six in the quarterly Psalms entitled, I Will Arise. And we're going to start with Sunday. If if somebody is following online and, and wants a deep dive into Sabbath lesson, that is in the notes. It's at the end of our notes today rather than the beginning because the, the subject matter in Sabbath lesson is on stuff we've covered in detail many times, God's wrath, God's judgment. And I didn't want to rehash that same material. But if we get there, we get there. I just, you know, often don't get to the full length of my notes. But if you want that and, and you need it for a class you're teaching, they're in the notes. Just download the notes and they're at the end. So Sunday's lesson, the lesson points our attention to Psalms 18. And let's do a, a comparison of the of the first 15 verses from the NIV and the remedy, keeping in mind the difference and what do you think of those differences? And of course, my view is that the, the proper Bible translation is not a word for word translation. It's trying to bring the true meaning across that, that God would want us to understand the inspired message that he has uh, placed in the writers to, to write in scripture. So Psalms 118, excuse me, Psalms 18, one and two from the NIV. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. And again, the primary message or the theme of scripture, this is how I, I put it in the remedy. I love you, O Lord, you are my strength. The Lord unites my will with his, making my resolve rock solid. He makes me strong and he heals my brokenness. God is my solid foundation. I trust him completely. He cleanses my mind, protecting me from lies. He is the source of my healing, my savior. Now, if you think about, you can see that these things uh, sound a little different. If you think about the reality of the sin problem and God's intervention through Jesus Christ to solve, uh, solve the sin problem and save you and me, what is God actually doing? Is God merely creating physical fortresses, places we can hide from external assaults. Is that the plan? I'll create some, some bastions, some rock solid fortresses that you can run and hide in a safe room. Or have many of God's faithful pre people on earth actually been attacked, assaulted, imprisoned, tortured, and killed. But while that was happening to them, their hearts and minds were fortresses. So, so that they would not fall into temptation and they loved their enemies like Stephen when he's being stoned, that he stood rock solid for the principles of God's kingdom. What is the true message that you think God wants us to, to think about that we have physical safety from physical enemies or that we have a rock solid savior who will never abandon us and we will have the Holy Spirit empowering us in times of, so this is how I, I'm seeing this, that this is the true gospel message about transforming hearts and minds. Verses three through six, I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise and I am saved from my enemies. 
The cords of death entangle me. The torrents of destruction overwhelm me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called out to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. And then from the remedy, notice again the emphasis. I called out to the Lord the source of goodness, love, and truth. Now, if you compare that to up there, the, the NIV says, I call out the Lord who is worthy of praise. Well, what makes the Lord worthy of praise? Is it simply that he's powerful? Don't the devils, according to scripture, believe in his power and it frightens them and they don't praise him? Or is it that he's worthy because he's the lamb who was slain? And every time in Revelation, we see the lamb who was slain, they go worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain. He's worthy of our praise because he's not only powerful, but he is safe with all that power. He is good, he is love, he is truth. That makes him worthy. So I called out to the Lord, the source of goodness, love, and truth, and he saves me from my enemies. The tendrils of death creep through me. The undertow of selfishness fills me with fear. The grave has a hold on me and pulls me down. The chains of death have captured me. In my terminal state, as the Bible says, dead in trespasses and sin, in my terminal state, I call out to the Lord. I cry out to my God for healing. He hears me from where he dwells. He hears my call for help. In the landscape of the great controversy is the primary issue being saved from what we call temporal death or the first death, or is the real message of scripture being saved from the eternal death that sin brings? And so I, again, am, am trying to emphasize that God is our savior, saving us from sin and eternal death, not simple, simply temporal death. And in fact, his good friends like Daniel died the temporal death and sleep in the grave waiting the resurrection. What is the real problem? Uh, yeah, so that's the real problem we face as sinners. And so going on to the next, Psalms 18, 7 and 8. The earth trembled and quaked and the foundation of the mountains shook. They trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils, consuming fire from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. Now, before I go to the, the remedy version, you know, we have been advised that we should learn to view the Bible as a whole, comparing all the various parts to the grand central theme, that all 66 books should be taken together and they inform each other. And sometimes when we read things that are in, in poetry or in symbolism, we gain meaning when we are remembering all the other places those phrases and terms are used. And we understand that, that insight into the text. You'll notice I've done that in this next um, in these next verses in the remedy, how there are elements brought in, hopefully you'll notice from the rest of scripture. The, um, and so from the remedy, the earthly systems shake and shudder. The foundation of pagan high places quiver. Pause right there. If you know Psalms 121, where it says, I look to the hills, whence come my strength? My strength. Well, that's, that's the old King James. All the modern translations actually make it correct. The, in the time that this was written, in the time of Israel, the high places, the hill places, were where the pagan cult fertilities were. And so the people were going up to the hills to worship the pagan gods. And, and the psalmist is saying, do I look to the hills to find my salvation? No, I look to the Lord. That's what Psalm 121 is saying. And so this is what we're finding here. The foundations of the mountain shook. The foundations of the pagan high places quiver. This is what I think the message of the psalm is, these false god systems. They tremble because God's passion to heal is fired up. The creative breath of life blew from his nostrils like smoke. 
smoke. Remember, he breathed in the man the breath of life. This is the 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 uh, the the, sm uh, the the breath of life coming. The fire of truth from his mouth. The burning flames of infinite love blazed forth from him. So, is the message of Scripture focused only on God's physical power? Again, the devils know he's powerful, and it scares them. If people know God is powerful but believe his law is like human law and believe God will use his power to torture and kill those who don't love him, will that resolve the sin problem? Believing in God's power will not resolve the sin problem because the sin problem didn't begin in heaven over a question of God being powerful. That was never raised. The question was, you can't trust him. He abuses his power. And so, yes, we believe in an infinitely power, omnipotent God, but the real question that has to be answered is whether we can trust the God who has the power. I love this song, this part. It's one of my very favorites of all because I think this is, the power is the intensity of God's, David had a, a, a concept of God's, the intensity of God's love was amazing to him. And he was overwhelmed by the belief that God has put so much effort into caring for him. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. So the message of scripture is that God's powers shake the earth, or the, in my view, are the powers of truth and love that overflow the carnal powers of this world. Yes. Truth overthrow, flow, overthrows lies and love overflow, overthrows fears and selfishness. And this is how God wins, not by might nor by power, but by the spirit, says the Lord. And so integrating all those truths of scripture in the larger landscape, we see that God's shaking up is shaking up the the false systems of this world not by using the very same methods that the systems of this world use so psalms uh 18 9 and 11. he parted the heavens and came down dark clouds were under his feet he mounted the cherubim and flew he soared on the wings of the wind he made darkness his covering his canopy around him the dark rain clouds of the sky now that's one way to interpret it but if you're thinking of the plan of salvation, can these same symbolisms uh, and same words be understood in a different way? So here's how I put it in the remedy. He stepped down to earth from his heavenly dwelling place. He entered into darkness, establishing himself in human form. He came swiftly flying on the wings of angels. He appeared by the power of the spirit, spirit moving upon Mary making humanity his tabernacle. He veiled his glory in the darkness surrounded by amniotic fluid, a dark cloud of water. So what do you think? Do you think that this plan of salvation is God simply floating in dark storm clouds with thunder, or it is God actually doing what he's accomplished in Christ? Amen. Yes. <laughs> So continuing on with the next uh, three verses. Out of the brightness of his presence, clouds advanced with hailstones and bolts of lightning. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot his arrows and scattered the enemies, great bolts of lightning, uh, and, routed, uh, and routed them. The valleys of the sea were exposed, and the foundation of the earth laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of his breath from your nostrils. And this is how I put it in the remedy. 
The light of truth goes forth from him, a hailstorm of fiery truth, powerful like lightning. The Lord spoke truth like thunder from heaven. The creator voiced words that burned like fire. He sends out his arrows of truth broadly across the earth, great flashes of light that only confuse those who prefer darkness. When you rebuke selfishness, O creator God, when your nostrils breathe out your life-giving power of love, the channels of water that bring life are seen and the foundations that you built life upon are understood. What is Jesus actually, what did he say his mission was? To be the light of the world, to roll back the darkness that had, that had you know, darkness covers the people, gross darkness the people. He's come to enlighten us, to free us from the enslavement of what this world systems have done. So I, I think that the Holy Spirit, through lots of symbolic language and poetry, is always inspiring for the eternal truths of the plan of salvation. Any questions? Well, couldn't David be harking back to the Israelites going through the Red Sea and so on, and the power that God displayed through Sinai and getting them on the through the water? And, and if he was, what was all that a symbol of? All of that was historical reality symbolically being recorded for the purpose of describing the plan of salvation to save us from sin. So it's still the same. Yeah. The central theme of scripture is the plan of salvation, is it not? Mm -hmm. And so again, I, it, it, many blogs on our website, I've, I confirm and affirm that the Bible records real historical people who did real historical things. But of the millions and millions of people who have lived, we have a very, very small select number who have their lives recorded in scripture. And it's my view that the Holy Spirit inspired that certain lives be recorded for not only historical accounting purposes, but because they also have object lesson realities. We have many blogs on our website that teach those object lesson realities from those real historical lives. Joseph's life, real historical, is an object lesson of the Savior. Moses' life, the same thing. Samson's life, the same thing. And, and, uh, and Abraham's life and, and so many more demonstrate real historical people that demonstrate in some aspect of their life the plan of salvation on the larger reality. So, yes, he may have been referring back to that in his mind, but the Holy Spirit inspired it to be recorded because it leads us to think of the deeper reality. So I don't see it as an either or. I see it as an and. So it doesn't deny that David was just overwhelmed by the intensity of God's love and work that of his on his behalf. And that be I think it's pretty Yeah, no, I agree. I think it's pretty clear that most Bible writers wrote things beyond their own understanding of what they were writing. Yeah. So so I, I agree with you. It's a, it's not an either or. But it's a wonderful, wonderful passage. Just marvelous. Monday's lesson, it says the title, the title is Justice for the Oppressed. What is justice? Just what is justice? Making right. Making right. Making right. right. Yeah, right. making right. Okay, right. Doing what is right or making right. And how do you know what right is? How do we define what right is? It depends on your law lens. There you go. It's the law that determines what's right. And so, for instance, simple example, in boxing, it's just to punch somebody in the face. In baseball, it's unjust to punch somebody in the face. 
Simple example. In Germany on the Autobahn, it's just to drive 160 miles an hour. In Collegedale, it's unjust to drive 160 miles an hour. Okay? The law of the land determines what's right or just. And so the question of God's justice will always come back to the question of what law do you understand God's justice through? And if you accept the Romanization of Christianity, that God's law functions like Roman law, then justice means something different. And this is exactly, again, now, what we have documented in the lie that is in, that, that was told in heaven infects Christianity and delays the coming. And that core lie is God's law functions like human law. And if you believe that lie, that always causes those to believe it to believe lies about God. They will always teach that God is required to punish sinners. And so justice in the human law model is punishing the oppressor. And if you've ever watched any TV shows, any law and order shows of any kind, they will always have somewhere in there talking to the, the victim or the victim's family, help us find the person and bring him to justice. Have you ever heard that? Bring them to justice, bring them to justice. Bring them to justice is bringing them in and punishing them. That's the system of human law. But in the Bible, you'll discover that under design law, justice is not punishing the oppressor, it's delivering the oppressed. That's the opposite. It is healing, restoring, recreating. So if somebody had a family member murdered under the human law, they wanna catch the murderer and punish them, bring them to justice. Under God's law, he resurrects the one murdered and restores them to their family. Amen. And works on the murderer. And then works on the murderer, thank you, to bring them to repentance so we can all be neighbors in heaven. Yes. Look at David David and Uriah yeah. in the hereafter. So when you think of God's justice, even for the unrepentant wicked in the end, what do you think God's justice for those unrepented ones will be? Does God use power at the end of time, at the end of the thousand years and the unrepented wicked to inflict punishment on them and call that justice? But the wicked think it is. When you or does God stop using power and thereby he delivers the oppressor from their suffering and that's what his justice is? Is God inflicting suffering to punish them? Or is he delivering those oppressed people regardless of what they think, Linda? Yes. And so let's jump to Wednesday's lesson. I'm gonna read several paragraphs from Wednesday's lesson and we're gonna unpack them. Wednesday's lesson. Some Psalms beseech God to take vengeance on individuals and nations who intend to harm or who have already harmed the Psalmists or their people. These Psalms, can sound perplexing because of their harsh language and apparent discord with biblical principles of love for our enemies. However, nowhere does the psalmist suggest himself to be the agent of vengeance. Instead, he leaves retribution solely to God's hands, in God's hands. The psalms evoke the divine covenant about God impend, God's impending judgment. They are not solely the psalmist's prayers Psalms 137 reflects the announcement of divine judgment on Babylon as seen in the prophet as seen in the prophets the devastation that the Babylonians brought 
to other nations would turn back on them. The Psalms conveyed divine warnings that evil will not go unpunished forever. God's retribution is measured with justice and grace. God's children are called to pray for those who mistreat them and even to hope for their conversion. What do you hear in these paragraphs? What law lens do you hear being applied to God in these paragraphs? Imposed law. Imposed. Which is the type of laws that creatures make up, which makes God out to be the source of pain, suffering, and death. And this is Satan's view of God. And it is contrary to the message that is to lighten the world that the Adventist church had the opportunity to embrace in 1888. And the, the ongoing um, ministry of Ellen White, she, she would refute what this says. And I'm gonna show you that in just a minute from the book, The Great Controversy. Um, we addressed Psalms 137 last week, so if you'd like an exploration of that Psalm in detail, just go to last week's class or last week's note, and we broke that Psalm out verse by verse. But notice the lesson uses language of re retribution or retributive justice, vengeance, judgment, which leads us, the mind, to think of inflicted punishment. But I'm gonna read you now a passage, of, of, and we're gonna unpack in detail a passage from the Great Controversy, Ellen White's writings, and I want you to specifically note a couple of things. She will use this language, retributive justice. But then I want you to go beyond the words to notice how she describes it works. How, how what God actually does, the action God takes. And if you do that, you'll notice God's retributive justice is nothing like what we hear described in the human law systems. So let's, let's walk through this, this uh, quotation. God has given to man a declaration of his character and his methods of dealing with sin. And, and, and I'm pausing there. What do you think that declaration is? What do you think is quoted? This comes out of, I believe it's uh, Deuteronomy. Oh no, it's Exodus 34. It says, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And that will by no means clear the guilty. We'll pause and ask that question. So declaration of his character, it's all good. Gracious, loving, merciful, but he won't clear the guilty. Well, why won't he clear the guilty? What does it mean? What law lens do you see it through? He won't clear, this is not he won't clear the guilty because of a judicial system and not having some legal penalty paid, but because of reality. The guilty that is described here are the unrepentant, those who remain infected, those who are still rebellious, those who are still hostile, still selfish, still terminal, still dead in trespass and sin, those who have not allowed God to heal them. And so God will not pretend that the unhealed, unreborn, unrenewed, unrighteous people are actually righteous. He will not declare people to be righteous who are still unrighteous, which is what the whole penal legal system says he's doing. That's a fraud. Continuing on with the quote, all the wicked will he destroy. The transgressors will be destroyed together. The end of the wicked shall be cut off. The power and authority of the divine government will be employed to put down rebellion. Yet all manifestations of retributive justice will be perfectly consistent with the character of God as merciful, long-suffering, and benevolent. What does this mean? Retributive justice? What law lens are you looking through? If it's a human law lens, you will hear this quote and then say, see, this is God's strange act. He is patient, he is loving, he is self-sacrificial. But at the end of the time, law requires that he uses power to put down sin, to kill, to exterminate. 
But that's not actually what is described in the next paragraphs that follow this. The actual functional application of why and how it happens is an application of design law. So let's keep reading. Notice the very next words after these words. God does not force the will or judgment of any. He takes no pleasure in slavish obedience. He desires that the creatures of his hand shall love him because he's worthy of love. Pause. If this is true, and I believe it's absolutely true, can God then be the source of inflicted suffering, punishment, and death? If you understand how reality works, how the law of love and the law of liberty actually work, then you recognize that the human imposed law understanding of retributive justice with its inflicted pain and inflicted death is incompatible with what we just read. It is impossible to get anything other than slavish obedience from inflicted punishments. Inflicted punishments do force the will and it is impossible to get love and trust by threatening to kill people who do not love and trust you. It's impossible. It incites rebellion. It incites distrust. Thus, immediately after the author calls and states that God will use his power to put down sin and cause this retributed justice, she immediately describes that it's impossible to do this by the use of power inflicting death and punishment. Is this a contradiction? Is this somebody who doesn't understand how, how reality works? Thus, immediately this author is calling on every person who still is capable of thinking for themselves, every person who's not blinded by the lies of Romanism and the imposed law system to stop, think, and inquire. How can God apply retributive justice and at the same time not be forcing people? How can he do both? And that is only possible when we understand design law. Continuing on. He would have them obey him because they have an intelligent appreciation of his wisdom, justice, and benevolence. Pause. What reason would God have us obey him? Not fear of punishment, but appreciation of his character of love, which this appreciation cannot exist if we actually teach that God is actually the source of inflicted pain, suffering, and death. This idea that death comes out from God as punishment for sin is Satan's original allegation in heaven, Desire of Ages 761. From the opening of the great controversy, Satan declared the law of God cannot be obeyed, and every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. Continuing on with the quote. All who have a just conception of these qualities will love him because they are drawn toward him in admiration of his attributes. But those who do not have a just conception of his qualities will either reject God or serve him out of fear, teaching theologies that hide them and protect them from God. And this is what penal substitution does. Penal substitution does not trust God. Penal substitution trusts all the interventions made to God, the payment made, the substitutionary intervention of a high priest pleading his blood to the Father in heaven, the application of blood to record books, something to erase the record so God can't see us, all uh, hiding us with the robe of righteousness. All these interventions are taught in these theologies because the people actually don't trust God. They trust what's being done to God to protect them from him. That's where they place their trust. It's a yeah. really subtle deception because it sounds so virtuous, it sounds so righteous, but it actually misrepresents God as an untrustworthy being. Continuing on. 
The principles of kindness, mercy, and love taught and exemplified by our Savior are a transcript of the will and character of God. What are principles? And what are the principles of God's character? Do the principles of kindness, mercy, and love taught and exemplified by Jesus, do those principles coerce, threaten, and torture? No. But that's what the, that's what the, the, the imperial law concept says. God is required to threaten and inflict punishment and torture and kill. So if you're thinking, you know, that imperial law concept doesn't work. Something's going on here. Okay. Christ declared that he taught nothing except that which he received from the Father. The principles of the divine government are in perfect harmony with the Savior's precept, love your enemies. And what are principles? It's another word for laws or protocols or standards. And in this case, it is God's character of love, which is the law of love, which is a transcript of his character. And does love seek to inflict pain and suffering to torture people who don't love? Or does love seek to deliver, to win, to heal? And notice what this author says, the principles of divine government are in perfect harmony with the Savior's precept, love your enemies. Notice the very next words. God executes justice upon the wicked for the good of the universe and even for the good of those upon whom, upon whom his judgments are visited. What? Does that seem confusing? We're gonna love our enemies by visiting justice upon them? But that is what she's saying. If you understand design law, right. if you understand imposed law, then you're using power to inflict harm. If you understand the justice of design law, it's doing what's right. And what determines what's right? Well, the law and God's law comes back to understanding that is not the Roman law, the inflicted law, the punishing law. It's the law of life, the law of love, which is the law of liberty, law of worship and so forth. And God uses his law, His power to heal, to save. But when people refuse him, then God uses his power. Now get your mind around this. It's going to blow your mind. When people refuse healing, God uses power to minimize pain, minimize suffering, and to stop the torment of those who won't allow him to heal them by applying his law of liberty and setting them free to reap what they have insisted upon separation from him and thus they die eternally and stop suffering. Thus God's justice is like the parent whose child is in liver failure and refuses all the interventions to heal. The parent doesn't seek to prolong and protract suffering without hope but allows the suffering to end naturally. Notice what then is described next. God executes justice upon the wicked for the good of the universe and even for the good of those upon whom his judgments are visited. Next sentence. He would make them happy if he could do so in accordance with the laws of his government and the justice of his character. Why can't he make them happy? Because they refuse to participate in his methods. They refuse to allow him to heal them. Love cannot be forced. It cannot be commanded. And thus God cannot use might and power to make them happy. And happiness is a byproduct of healthiness. And healthiness is only possible in harmony with God's design laws. And they refuse them. He surrounds them with 
the tokens of his love, grants them a knowledge of his law, and follows them with the offers of his mercy, but they despise his love, make void his law, and reject his mercy. How do they make void his law? They make void his law by rejecting the design law and replacing it with a false imperial legal system. Think how sad it will be for those legalistic Sabbath keepers who wouldn't enter Pilate's house and sought to kill Jesus and got him off the cross in order to keep the Holy Sabbath before sunset. Law keepers, but the wrong law. Not the wrong Sabbath day. They had the right Sabbath day. They had the wrong law. They had imperial law with the right day. And thus they killed the creator whose laws are design laws because they hate a system like that. How sad it will be for them to be all this legal religious rule keeping and find that they have always been fighting against God. While constantly receiving his gifts, they dishonor the giver. They hate God because they know that he abhors their sin. The Lord bears long with their perversity, but the decisive hour will come at last when their destiny is to be decided. Well, who determines their destiny? Is it a, the imposed law will tell you this law. It's in the heavenly tribunal. There's a judge going on and record books are being opened and there's a legal ruling happening in a courtroom in heaven. Uh, and that decision of the heavenly you know, ruler or judge decides, determines the destiny. No, that's not what's happening. What determines and who decides the destiny is the decision of the sinner themselves to harden their hearts against the work of the Holy Spirit and close him out. Will God, will he chain these rebels to, to his side? Will he force them to do his will? Now, these are rhetorical questions, meaning that God will not do this, even though God has the power to do this. He could artificially keep them alive by his side, but he won't use power in this way because it would then use power to inflict torture and pain and God is not the source of pain. He's the source of healing and life. Note, note the very next words. Those who have chosen Satan as their leader and have been controlled by his power are not prepared to enter the presence of God. Why are they not prepared? Is it that they don't have the right blood? They don't have the right legal payment? They don't have the right robe to hide them from the father who will see their true self and thus lash out in anger and wrath and kill them? And if they only had the right blood or the right robe, then they'd be prepared? They could hide from the father's knowledge? No, it's because they don't have the right heart, the right mind, the right character. They don't have Christ living within. They don't have, they have not partaken of the divine nature. They haven't had their hearts circumcised by the spirit. Continue with the quote. Pride, deception, licentiousness, cruelty have become fixed in their characters. Pause. How did it become fixed? Who fixed it there? If God judges their characters as fixed in sin and beyond saving, does that mean that God's judgment is what makes their characters fixed in sin? Or is God's judgment simply the accurate diagnosis of what they've chosen to do to themselves? Amen. Yes. Yes. Okay? Can they... Have, can they enter heaven to dwell forever with those who they've despised and hate on earth? Truth will never be agreeable to a liar. Meekness will not satisfy self-esteem and pride. Purity is not acceptable to the crop. Disinterested love does not appear attractive to the selfish. What source of enjoyment could heaven offer to those who are wholly absorbed in earthly and selfish interests? 
Could those whose lives have been spent in rebellion against God be suddenly transported to heaven and witness the high, the holy state of perfection that ever exists there? Every soul filled with love, every countenance beaming with joy, enrapturing music and melodious strains, rising in honor to God and the Lamb, and ceaseless streams of light flowing from the redeemed, from the face of him flowing upon the redeemed from the face of him who sits upon the throne. Could those whose hearts are filled with hatred of God, of truth and holiness, mingle with the heavenly throng and join their songs of praise? Could they endure the glory of the lamb? No, no. Why? Because God uses divine power to prevent them? Because God uses divine power to torture them, to inflict harm upon them? Or is their condition incompatible with God's design for life? Years of probation were granted them that they might form characters for heaven, but they have never trained the mind to love purity. They have never learned the language of heaven. And now it is too late. A life of rebellion against God has unfitted them for heaven. Why are they unfit? Is it that they don't have a, the right legal payment recorded in a heavenly registry? They haven't had all their sins erased out of a book in some document in heaven? Or is it something actually incompatible with life as God has created it within them? Mm. Notice why they are unfit. Next words. Heaven's purity, holiness, and peace would be torture to them. The glory of God would be a consuming fire. This is huge, folks. Mm -hmm. yeah. What do these unrepentant, wicked people experience as torture? Notice what tortures them. Purity, mm -hmm. holiness, wow. and peace. Wow. Purity, holiness, and peace is what tortures them. Is this God using his power to cause pain, to inflict suffering? Is there something coming out from God other than goodness, mercy, love, and truth? No, it is their condition which experiences goodness as pain, purity as torment, holiness as suffering. The torture happens because of sin in them, not as an infliction from God. Next words. They would long to flee from that holy place. They would welcome destruction that they might be hidden from the face of him who died to redeem them. What do the wicked actually want? What would they welcome? Separation from God. And they want it because they, they want to be at peace. They want to stop suffering. So in this situation... What is the justice of God? What is the just action for God to take? What is the merciful action for God to take? To let it go. Using power. And notice the next words. The destiny of the wicked is fixed by their own choice. Their exclusion from heaven is voluntary with themselves and just and merciful on the part of God. Like the waters of the flood, the fires of the great day declare God's verdict, his diagnosis, his conclusion, that the wicked are incurable. This is design law, folks. This is justice, this is mercy. This is the justice and mercy rightly understood as always an expression of God's character. And what justice is described here? 
What is God's retributive justice? Not using power to inflict pain. God, even for the wicked, if you see functionally what is occurring, God is delivering the wicked in the end from torment, from torture and suffering by the application of the law of love and liberty and setting them free to reap what is voluntary and what is welcoming to them, separation from him and life. God's justice is never the active use of power to inflict pain, suffering, and torment. It is delivering from it. Questions? Ken, Ken and I were studying in Isaiah last night, and it was interesting. We've already many times talked about Isaiah 1 saying, I'll avenge myself on my enemies. How? Purge their dross. That's his revenge. But then we were studying last night in Isaiah 35, um, where it says, starting with verse 3, Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way, say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with a vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. There you go. Same thing. So you think of, say, we're in a prisoner giant, prisoner of war camp. Well, if you were in a, uh, like a real prisoner of war camp in the war, you hope the Navy SEALs who come to rescue you are capable of rescuing you, capable of getting, wresting you away from your captor. And I think this is talking about the, the retribution of God is proving the ability to rescue those who have been held captive for so long. Another analogy would be like a doctor having vengeance on the cancer that's killing the child. It's not the There you go. He doesn't want to kill the child. He wants to, he wants to rescue the child by killing the cancer that's killing the child. And so again, in the end, God's justice is restoring everything back to harmony with his design laws. And those who've hardened themselves in rebellion would find purity, peace, love, truth, torture, and God sets them free to experience what they voluntarily want, exclusion from his kingdom. And thus God's justice is delivering the wicked themselves from torture and torment. Do you see how beautiful that is? But some get confused because they don't differentiate discipline from punishment and they don't distinguish therapy from torture, treatment from torment. And thus they will conflate, mix together God's disciplining and therapeutically intervening in human history with God punishing. They're not the same. Things like Sodom and Gomorrah, the 185,000 Assyrians, the plagues of Egypt, the flood, all these actions of God are not God punishing. They are God either disciplining or therapeutically intervening to bring about the plan of salvation, as we've explained many times. But people will conflate those because they mix up first death and second death and a lot of other elements going on in the context. Tuesday's lesson points our attention to Psalms 82. Let's compare that uh, with, uh, with the NIV and the remedy. So Psalms 82, one, God presides in the great assembly. He gives judgment among the gods. And then from the remedy, God takes a stand against the assembly of false gods. 
he presents his diagnosis regarding all pagan gods. Huh. Does that sound the same to you? Well, let's add two more versions. Let's add the good news and the new English. Here's the good news. God presides in the heavenly council. In the assembly of the gods, he gives his decision. Now, does that seem a little confusing that in the heavenly council there are other gods? Is, is, the, is the Bible telling us that, that really God's kingdom runs like Greek mythology with God being like Zeus managing a bunch of lesser gods and demigods? That in the heavenly council there's a bunch of other gods there? That doesn't sound quite right. Something sounds something off about that. Here's the, any, the New English translation. God stands in the assembly of El. In the midst of the gods, he renders judgment. And then the NET has this explanation in their commentary. The phrase assembly of El appears only here in the Old Testament. Some understand El to refer to God himself. In this case, he is pictured presiding over his own heavenly assembly. Others take El as a superlative here. God stands in the great assembly. Uh, the present, their translation assumes this is a reference to the Canaanite high god El, who presides over the Canaanite divine assembly, uh, where El's assembly is called the stars of El. In the uh, Greek myths, the phrase uh, refers to assembly of the gods who congregate in King Kirtu's house where Baal asks Baal, who is the son of El, where Baal asks El to bless Kirtu's house. Uh, if the Canaanite divine assembly is referred to here in Psalms 82.1, then the psalm must be understood as a bold polemic against Can. Can, the, against the Canaanite religion. Israel, Israel's God invades El's assembly, denounces its gods as failing to uphold justice, and announces their coming demise. Uh, the, translate, the, the New English translation assumes that the Hebrew term Elohim, which is translated in all the verses as gods, plural, Elohim, gods, plural, here refers to the pagan gods who supposedly comprise El's assembly according to Can, the Canaanite religion. Those who reject the polemic view, the view that the New English takes, view the psalm, uh, uh, view the psalm prefer to see the uh, reference as human judges, so that word Elohim or gods refers to human judges or rulers, uh, sometimes officials appointed by God, or as angelic beings in the heavenly courts. So the point here is, here we have this verse, and do you notice the, the Hebrew allows for a quite wide and distinct variance in interpretation? Angels or humans or pagan gods for Elohim, uh, God the Father, his heavenly host, uh, uh, God or the, or the pagan god El. It's wide open to interpretation. And all of it can be legitimately interpreted based on the linguistics and the language translation. The remedy takes the position similar to the New English translation that this is God's indictment of the false gods of this world with their imposed legal systems that always render injustice under the guise of justice. So now we're going to go back and compare just the NIV and the remedy. We'll start back in verse 1 and do verse 1 and 2 in those two versions. God presides in the great assembly. He gives judgment among the gods. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? And then the remedy. God takes a stand against the assembly of false gods. He presents his diagnosis regarding all pagan gods. He says, when, you, when will you stop using a list of rules to govern? When will you stop protecting selfishness with your legal system? And you understand that the human imposed law systems of every country in the world 
with legal oversight and, and inflicted punishments never provide justice. Never. Someone is always getting misjudged. Innocents are always getting punished. Guilty people are always getting off. Corrupt judges, abuses of power, and so on and so forth. Pardon? Oh, the judges are bought with money. And yeah, that's exactly right. Yes. And this corrupt system of imposed laws was incorporated into Christianity through Rome. And it is taught that God's system works this way and God's justice. Now, get your mind around this. See, when I said, do you, do you recognize immediately when I said a moment ago that in all these human legal systems, innocent people get punished and guilty people go free? Do you recognize that happens? Yes. 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 And do you recognize that's not just? Yes. Right. Okay, get your mind around what penal substitution teaches because through this Roman lie, it's taught that God's system works the same way and God's justice is for God to punish an innocent person and declare the guilty innocent and let them off. Wow. That's what penal substitution teaches, that the innocent Jesus was punished by God in our place oh. so that God can declare us innocent. And the blind guides who are leading the blind don't ever realize how unjust all of this is. They will all, with all sincerity, declare such actions to be just. <laughs> Psalms 82, 3 and 4. Defend the cause of the weak and fatherless. Maintain the rights of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And then from the remedy. Do what is actually right, healthy, and loving for all people. Protect the poor and the fatherless. Do what is right for the poor and the oppressed. What heals and restores. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the power of selfishness. And then here we, then we see the contrast between the design law system, um, which actually comes to heal and restore the people, not simply enforce rules. And then verse five, they know nothing they understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. And the remedy, the false gods don't understand reality. They don't understand my design laws, how I built life to function. They operate in darkness, in the darkness of the rule enforcement system, and the world is crumbling all around them. So the other has, and the foundations of the earth are shaken, mine, in the darkness of a rule enforcement system, and the world is crumbling all around them. Do you see the world today crumbling all around us as governments pass more and more laws, use more force in their attempts to try and bring more order, more order but instead things are crumbling? Do you see it? Mm -hmm. As more laws get passed, do things get better or worse? worse? Consider some of these laws. In New York City now, there's a law that defines more than 27 different gender identities. <laughs> it's a law. Does this bring more unity, harmony, clarity, stability, or contribute to confusion, division, and the crumbling of society? Laws that declare intoxicating substances as legal are not the same as making those substances healthy. You see, human, human systems cannot change design laws, the laws of health. And the data now shows that in Colorado, where they have legalized marijuana, mental health disorders are 35% higher than the national average since the legalization of men. And I'm not talking about addiction, just across the board, psychotic disorders, anxiety disorders, mood disorders, mental health problems are 35% higher in Colorado than the rest of the nation. 
because God's laws cannot be changed by legislation. And when you violate God's laws, damage always occur. How about laws that are passed to tell you what light bulbs, appliances, and straws you must use? Do these laws have any bearing on the actual reality? No, they're all based on lies designed to trick people into going along with force that enslaves the masses and makes them buy stuff they don't need so it will take buying power and money out of the masses' hands and put it in the hands of the uber elite titans of industry, thereby making the wealthy wealthier and the, well, and the poorer poorer. And they don't just take away and steal money in this distorted and perverse way. They take away freedom. But the blind masses, they do it in such a deceitful, dishonest way that the blind masses approve of it and go along thinking they're somehow saving the planet. If you haven't read our blogs, God's Promises and Climate Change Part 1 and 2, I encourage you to read them because essentially everything you're told about climate change is a lie. And it contradicts scripture. And it contradicts science. And it contradicts the evidence. I'll just tell you the bottom line. All the data we have in the world right now is that because of the burning of the fossil fuels that we're doing, taking and putting carbon back in the atmosphere, that carbon is used by plants to make more plant life, and the earth today is 20% greener and more habitable for human beings than it was in 1980. That's the science. I, I remember yeah. reading maybe 30 or 40 years ago that what they called desertification was going to destroy the green places, you know. But what, what's happened is exactly the opposite because of just what you said, because of more the, in the atmosphere. Right. They're, 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 it's not happening. Green spaces are going out. And that's exactly right. And because it's, it's the exact reversal. At the flood, most of the carbon in the, in the um, and, and life on Earth requires water, carbon, and oxygen. And most of the carbon got buried in the oil and coal fields during the Great Flood and the water got sequestered in the oceans and the polar ice caps. And as we've been digging out the carbon and returning it into the atmosphere, the plants have been using it with the water and oxygen to create more plant life. And the deserts, the uninhabitable deserts of the world have shrunk by 20% uh, since 1980 as we burn more and more of the carbon. And so the earth is actually becoming greener and more human friendly since the burning of the carbon. But the liars uh, are trying to uh, create a fear on something you cannot measure with your own senses, climate is changing. You cannot, with the, the, with, with the senses God has given you, measure climate change. And so you just have to believe these, these authoritarian experts as they tell you this and go along with their lies. It's a grand form of, of mass deception and, and exploitation. I want to finish the psalm. So, so quick, Linda. I just want to say we heard a, um, an Asian scientist who left Harvard because he could not say what he felt was true. They were squishing his beliefs, and he said, science actually proves the sun is causing the global warming. Because we're, it's, it's hotter, we're in a global, we're in a warming period of the sun, a hotter period, and the sun is actually causing this, not the uh, carbon dioxide, but he can't tell that because they all, they, it doesn't conform to the, yeah. to the lie. Mm -hmm. To the lot. All right. Well, verses six and seven. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the most high, but you will die like mere men. You will fall like every other ruler. I say to you, fallen angels pretending to be gods. 
Even though you are all children of the Most High, you will die like mortals. Your life will end like that of any ordinary ruler. All the false gods of this world are proxies for Satan and his fallen angels. And we are either worshiping God or one of Satan's proxies. Is that not true? And then rise up, O God, judge the earth for all the nations are your inheritance. And then from the remedy, rise up, O God, and diagnose the earth for the entire world belongs to you. Do you hear the words judge and diagnose the same or do they have a different connotation? Yeah, it shifts the responsibility and causality. A judge determines the outcome. A physician diagnoses what's actually there and does not determine the outcome. In my view, we were made in God's image and we were given God-like abilities and we were designed to be the, the living temple where God's living law of love was to operate and we were given capacities to be procreators and thus we are little gods in God's image. And that's what I think that's referring to. Thursday's lesson, the title is The Lord's Judgment in the Sanctuary. And the first paragraph from the lesson says the following. The Lord's judgment is closely related to the sanctuary. The sanctuary was an environment where the psalmist understood understanding of the problem of evil was transformed. The sanctuary was designated as a place of divine judgment as indicated by the judgment of Urim and of course Thummim and by the uh, breastplate of judgment of the high priest. According to many psalms, to, accordingly, many psalms depict God on his throne in the sanctuary ready to judge the world for sin and evil. Now, I, I'm gonna, the reason I want to uh, uh, examine this paragraph is because this is actually sad. It's disturbing to me. Because you'll, the, the, they put, constructed a paragraph to make an assertion that is exactly not what the scripture teaches. And they've cited Exodus 28.15 and Exodus 28.30 as evidence for this idea that the sanctuary is a place of some type of judicial judgment of some kind. So let's look at Exodus 28.15 and 30. We're going to look at the New King James first. You shall make the breastplate of judgment. You shall put the breastplate of judgment uh, the, on the breastplate of judgment, er, the Urim and Thummim, and they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes before the Lord. So Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. That's the New King James Version. And those words are perfectly fine if you have a design law view. Because if you have a design law of you and you think you're going to go into the doctor for the doctor to make a judgment about what's going on, you don't actually have anything judicial going on. You're asking for his assessment, his discernment, his conclusion, his recommendations about what's best, his directions, his prescriptions, and that's perfectly righteous and what's actually meant here. But if you have the human law model, then you actually hear judgment as something judicial, something executive going on. And that is exactly not what the Bible is teaching. So let me read this to you from the New English translation. Same verses. You are to make a breastplate for using and making decisions. You are to put the Urim and the Thummim into the breastplate of decision. And they are to be over Aaron's heart when he goes before the Lord. Aaron is to bear the decisions of the Israelites over his heart before the Lord continually. Now, do you hear breastplate of decision and the urim of decision and bear the decisions? Does that sound the same to you as judgment? Mm -hmm. 
No. And so the New English Bible commentary on these verses said, the Urim and Thummim were two objects intended for determining the divine will or judgment in several verses, but it's determining the divine will. The term is mis mishpat, uh, the same word to describe the breast piece that held the two objects. Here it is translated decision, since the Urim and Thummim contained in the breast piece represented the means by which the Lord made decisions for the Israelites. The high priest bore the responsibility of discerning the divine will on matters of national importance. And then if you don't like that Bible commentary, here's a Bible commentary you might like better. It's called Patriarchs and Prophets. And notice what this Bible commentary says. At the right and left of the breastplate were two large stones of great brilliancy. These were known as the Urim and the Thummim. By them, the will of God was made known through the high priest. When questions were brought for decision before the Lord, a halo of light encircling the precious stone at the right was a token of the divine consent or approval, while a cloud shadowing the stone on the left was an evidence of denial and disappro disapprobation. So the idea that the high priest was acting in a judicial manner is not supported by the breastplate of Urim and Thummim, but the idea that the high priest acted to discern, make wise decisions to lead the people is supported, and that's design law. Truth is unfolding and revealed, and people seek to understand the truth and follow the truth where it leads. This is the purpose of the sanctuary, to reveal truth, to reveal truth about God and the plan of salvation and lead people out of sin, out of alienation, out of fear, out of selfishness, out of death, back into at one or unity with God. And it is so corrupt to present the sanctuary as a place of judicial processing because it actually obstructs the very leading and discerning of truth that God wants us to be brought into unity with him for. And this, and, I, and this is what happens, and it happens innocently. I don't think they're plotting to obstruct. It simply happens because they have accepted and have never overthrown the lie that God's law works like human law. And when you accept that lie, you always result with good heart, with bad conclusions that obstruct the plan of salvation. Hey, Tim. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you for your patience. We thank you for the truth that you revealed to us, and we ask for the Spirit to come and lighten our minds, transform our hearts, and make us more effective in taking the true final message of mercy to the world so that your glory may be revealed. For the hour in history has come for people to make a right judgment about you and stop judging you to be this Roman imperial dictator punishing God and see you as Jesus revealed you to be, our, our creator, savior, healer, and deliverer. May you come soon, Lord. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.